Welcome to The Calm Down. This week, we'll be discussing the history of drug panic in the United States and its effects in the present day. My guest is Sarah Deutsch, a friend of mine from high school who received her master's in public health from the City University of New York and was a director of outreach and prevention for a syringe exchange in Washington Heights. Currently, Sarah is working in Washington State to help scale up programs that serve people who use drugs. Today, Sarah will share her expertise as we discuss the morality of drugs and the differences and similarities in cultural perceptions in the current opioid crisis. We've already covered the panic. Now, here's the calm down. I'm here with my friend Sarah Deutsch. We're sitting. Hi, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. We're sitting on my um, bedroom floor on this uh, Persian rug knockoff that I got off the internet. And uh, it's Sarah. It's very comfortable. It's comfortable. Apparently, my room, what did you call it? Peaceful? It does look very peaceful tonight. It isn't. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I, uh, I know Sarah from high school. We became friends. My junior year and your sophomore year, right? Yeah. Before you moved away to the cool art school that I was very it's jealous. It's true. Of. I did get sent away for doing too many drugs. Did you? Yeah, I was Is found really in my why? friend's basement. <gasps> I yep. don't think I knew that. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, high school was real. I was there. And we met. <laughs> we met uh, I did not know you got sent away for that. How perfect. So, I mean, it's a great example of positive reinforcement, right? I'm a real success story. Ivy League college. You man. are a success story. Yes, because we hung out in high school. We got into some serious trouble. Um or not serious trouble. Tr- we should have gotten... We got in a lot less trouble than other people of a different social and racial background would have gotten in. I couldn't have said it better myself. And now, Sarah, you, after high school, you ended up... Where'd you go to school? Oh, <laughs> weirdly, we're going yeah. there. <laughs> I know, I'm just... I'm, gonna, I'm totally here to like, I, cast an elite light upon you, okay? Lord almighty. <laughs> I went to Columbia in New York, and um, definitely where we were from, people did not associate Columbia with anything other than the country, so... Yeah, and I mean, I think the reason I also bring that up is because it took you away, and it took you to a very different type of place, and that's True. where you started to get into the work that you do in harm reduction. So could you kind of just tell all of us a little bit whether you want to talk about how you got into the work, and then also about kind of like what the work is that you do, and then we'll get more into kind of drug policy and your thoughts about that. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Um I was a senior in college, uh, and I ran into a friend um, outside of school one day, and I had just come back from a visit home where a very dear friend who had been dealing with her drug use um, and being in and out of these abstinence-based rehabs And I had just dropped her off and I ran into this person back at school who told me about a needle exchange that she had been volunteering with. And it kind of blew my mind. I was immediately drawn to it and literally was like, please sign me up. How can I get involved? I showed up. I met these brilliant, beautiful people who ran a needle exchange in Washington Heights, uh, which is north of Harlem and Manhattan. And I honestly like this work is 100% um, about 
feeling comfortable and about feeling at home and about feeling love for people. And I really was at a place in my life where I was like, I truly can't fathom what comes after college. And then it just sort of fell in my lap. So I felt very lucky. So can you tell us a little bit about what a needle exchange is? Sure. Um, so a needle exchange, it's funny that you mentioned this because the work that I am now doing is much drier and more bureaucratic. And I am constantly trying to describe in very sterile terms what needle exchange is. So at its core, it's really providing sterile syringes to people who inject to prevent sharing or reuse, and then also taking in used syringes for safe disposal. There is a lot more layers to what can be accomplished at a needle exchange, but I think that the other core component really is providing an environment that is non-judgmental, where somebody can come anonymously to do that exchange, because there's really nowhere else that people who inject have to go uh, to talk about how to stay safe when they're injecting. You and I have talked a lot, and and you really helped me on this episode tremendously. I I was feeling, I was drowning in the information, drowning in what was (laughs) important, though, you know, like just drowning in in what felt like a very, very important, painful, and complicated topic. And you really, really helped me with that. And something we talked about a lot is the idea of morality and Mm -hmm. whether drugs themselves are moral, immoral, and then how we cast drug users as immoral based only really in in like this history that we have about drugs. And, and you have succinctly talked about that in ways that I really like. And so I'm wondering if you can just, let's just get into like morality. I, I think the best place to start with the morality of drug use is actually really in the ethics of support and love. And I think the reason that I'm, that's on my mind is really where we left off in the last question. But the reason that I say that is that I see so much hatred out there for people who use drugs and it really boggles my mind um, because the ethical approach to to dealing with other people is to be kind and try to understand where they're coming from. So where I have to go in my head is that there's a type of superiority that exists around drug use that doesn't exist elsewhere in other kinds of behavior. And I have to then tie that into laws and the way that they're enforced. So when something becomes illegal, you have people who get arrested for certain behaviors, right? And we know through your episode, thank you very much, um, that those laws can be applied with discretion and to certain populations more than others. But when you get arrested and when you go to jail and when you get convicted and when you go to prison, eventually, we hope, you then reenter society. And you reenter society with this label of criminal. And when we are, you know, dealing with that kind of label, that's where morality enters, because criminals are the lepers of society. And it doesn't matter what you did, you broke the law. And as like sort of this law abiding society, 
that is really intermingled. So I'm really interested right now um, in sort of this viewing what's happening with legalization around marijuana, because what was something that was heavily, heavily enforced and for sure in among people of color way more than it was among white people. Um, And what has happened is that these people who have suffered the consequences of criminalization are still living with those brands. And then people who got away with doing the exact same thing that their fellow humans were also doing by lying or by just not getting caught or by um, having certain privileges or by having certain privileges. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Um, they're coming out and admitting their use. Um, and that was like particularly off putting to me personally. And, you know, I, I watched this unfold on Twitter. I have like an unfortunate new habit, um, was when Kamala Harris came out laughing about her marijuana use. And just it felt so insensitive compared to her work enforcing the law. Right, because um, she was a prosecutor. Because she was mm-hmm. a prosecutor, and she put a ton of people behind bars. And the very fact that, you know, we're in a place where we can laugh about that is such a good example of how morals are totally interlinked with laws. And totally dependent on, like, just whatever we decide in the moment, right? I mean, a moral, like, we just decided one day, or Harry Enslinger, whoever decided, that marijuana was immoral, right? Like, we, right. We, it's not that this has an intrinsic quality to it. And I think, Absolutely. too, like, we see this, like, because uh, we both live in Washington State, which marijuana has become legal here. I walk into the store, I buy whatever I want, whenever I want, and... I also realize that there are still people where these companies are popping up, mostly white-run companies, mm-hmm. whereas people who in the same communities who used to deal drugs are still in prison or are still yep. marked with criminality, as you've said, are still And not eligible to open those businesses. Absolutely not. If you have a felony... uh, I mean, you're not even eligible to (laughs) vote or get, like, certain, you know, government benefits anymore because of it. And so I think that that itself is is kind of what you're talking about in, at, like, almost a bureaucratic level of, of now we are allowing people to become rich off of what has previously, like, decimated communities of color, especially. That's a great word. um, And I think it's really accurate. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. 
Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week. And you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. So something that I I can never include everything I want to in the episodes, and usually I'll touch on current events, but I like to sort of give the history and let people kind of use that to form their own opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, regardless, we're going to talk about our opinions now about <laughs> the current biggest um, drug epidemic that mm-hmm. they say, which I mean, perhaps it is, um, but that is the opioid prescription drug issue that we are facing as a country. And I know that you have a lot of thoughts about that because in a way it's a departure (laughs) from some of the things we're talking about in a way it's not. So um, can you just, you want to just take it away? Yes, I will do my best to do this topic justice. I know that it's really prevalent in the news media and elsewhere, and it's also really close to people's hearts. Um, It's not at all an exaggeration when people call it a crisis, right? We've lost 700,000 people in this country over the last 25 years, um, maybe even less. And so obviously, it's important to be sensitive when addressing this. But part of what I feel frustrated by is that there are solutions. um, And some of the solutions are on their way to being recognized and being implemented. Um, And some are still being withheld. And so I, I think one of the things that maybe we haven't touched on as much is that sort of the moral flip side in drug use, other than incarceration and enforcement of laws, is treatment and abstinence. And the idea that um, a person of a strong character can stop using drugs. Um, And this sort of myth has been very, very prevalent in our society. And what it has led to is this pervasive sense of failure for people for whom that doesn't work. And that's like 90% of people. Um, And, you know, on average, people who try abstinence as a form of cessation um, try eight times. Um, And people who go to abstinence-based treatment programs have about as successful of a two-year abstinence outcome as people who decide to just stop cold turkey. So what's unfortunate about this whole conversation is that drug or substance use disorder has 
a, a treatment for it. And just like diabetes can be treated with insulin um, and cancer can be treated with chemotherapy and no two people with diabetes and no two people with cancer are going to be treated exactly the same way. So a person with a substance use disorder can be treated with medications like buprenorphine or methadone. And while it won't work exactly the same way for every single person, they do have an extremely strong evidence base. And what I believe to be unethical is withholding Mm -hmm. that kind of medication from a person who is deserving of treatment, as deserving as a person living with high blood pressure, who's at high risk of a cardiac event. Um, So with, you know, 50 plus years of research supporting the use of methadone and well over 20, 30 years of research around buprenorphine use, it's really problematic that it's so heavily regulated that it can only be distributed in certified, wavered uh, programs, and that's just perpetuating stigma against people who use drugs. Um, I think what else is really tough, and I know that I'm talking so much, so just cut me off if you need to at any point, but another thing that's really tough in this sort of mentality that, um, you know, abstinence is the only true form of recovery Um, is that there's still no real industry standard in abstinence-based treatment. Um, There's, you know, a lot of these places are for-profit and they can claim, you know, to be uh, the best of the best, but at the end of the day, they they really don't have to be doing anything but lip service. Um, And people are at over a hundred times a greater likelihood of having a fatal overdose after a period of abstinence. And that can be forced through either incarceration or through these attempts at abstinence-based drug treatment. Um, And that elevated risk is just a complete tragedy because people, I think, often are sort of coerced into this position where they believe that if they can't be abstinent, then they're a failure. Um, and I guess maybe the last thing that I sort of worry about in, in thinking about treatment is sort of where medical care has been driven through the opioid epidemic. Um, people have really viewed, you know, healthcare providers as the villains here, as the people who opened the floodgates to opioids and exposed all these people to uh, Oxycontin and to Vicodin um, and then created this sort of horde of dependent opioid users. Um, But I think it's really scary because when, you know, you put certain regulations in place, prescribers do have to be adherent to them. And that includes when you tell prescribers to stop prescribing pain medication. And when you tell prescribers to stop prescribing pain medication and they do it, then you have a whole lot of people out there who don't have access to treatment that they maybe need or are dependent on. And then you see massive, massive spikes in fatal overdose. And 
where a lot of the sort of public money is being directed right now is in prescription drug monitoring programs. And like I said, I just feel really nervous and we've already been down this road and, and we see that when people, when prescribers prescribe less, people die. And people probably turn to the black market, I, I would assume. You've mentioned that to me, you know, going toward heroin, and um, which we see regardless of when people lose access to their exactly. prescriptions or, you know, they get caught doing whatever they're doing. Um, they're going to turn to the identical, virtually identical street versions of yeah. what exists. And I think... And you can see the exact cross graph, right, as prescription overdoses go down, heroin overdoses go up. It does. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised by that. I guess that that would lead into something that I want to talk about in the episode again, but it, we didn't. And that is sort of the changing um, or maybe not changing because I think that there's a lot happening here. But the way that the rhetoric around opioid users is different from what we saw in the episode. Mm-hmm. And um, part of that seems to be that the person that we see as the opioid user is not who we have deemed a right. criminal drug user in the right, past. Right, right. It is a lot of, you know, lower or middle or even upper class white folks who are seeming to be also absolved from responsibility because there's a different person to Absolutely. blame. And that's something that you brought to my attention because I immediately went into, oh, it's because, you know, they look like the way that they do. And that is absolutely, I believe, part of it. Um, but it's also... Yeah, I, th- I think it's a way of saying, well, you know, like maybe the people who use drugs before OxyContin had a constitutional failure Mm -hmm. and character flaw. But because my loved one started using drugs during this crisis, it must be something else in society. And I can displace sort of this um, fear and blame um, and hurt because it's somebody else's fault. And, you know, that's unfortunate in part because... The communities that have always been invisibilized remain invisibilized mm-hmm. in this, and they aren't by not getting additional support. Um, communities of color continue to suffer and continue to bear the brunt of this, and the brunt of criminalization and the brunt of lack of treatment access. Right, even as we scale up access to medication-assisted therapies, like I was just talking about we see lower rates of uptake among people who who need it who are of lower socioeconomic status for example but we definitely don't hear them being called monsters we don't hear them out of control we don't hear them i don't even hear like the zombie as much which we hear sometimes with downers i think we see like the zombie totally. thing coming in a little bit more not the face eating part not that part of the zombie but the sort of like the benzoed, bent over, sure. nodding, uh-huh. yeah. nodding off a uh, heroin addict type person. But yeah, I just think that we are going in a better direction in, in, in a sense because we are starting to treat this as a medical condition. But it is suspect to me that it is only now that we are doing so with this particular epidemic. And maybe that is because time has softened us and we have looked at the evidence and we have done that. And then I think the pessimistic part of me or maybe the realistic part of me also knows that the picture that we have of the opioid user and their um, sort of inherent privileges and traits 
protect them in ways that communities of color and and low income or um, difficult um, deviant parts of sections of our culture have not. And so, yeah, that's um, I think that we are pretty much out of time. But um, <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. This has been so really, though, this has been so wonderful. And I've always admired the work that you've done. So thank you for lending your experience to the show both both in the episode and and talking to me today (laughs) well it's my pleasure and I always love plugging harm reduction and you know my my people in in needle exchange doing the doing the life-saving work and doing the ground like on the ground work too hell yeah that is exactly what it's all about go hug your local needle exchange employee, volunteer, whatever. Yes. Thank you, Chelsea. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Sarah. From Skylark, this was American Hysteria's The Calm Down. My guest this week was Sarah Deutsch. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this episode was produced by Clear Camo Studios. Join me next week for our season finale on The End of the World. Friends, hello. I'm Mike Regnetta, the host of Never Post, a new and independent news podcast about and for the internet. In addition to bringing you the latest in current events, we try to figure out why the internet and the world because of the internet is the way it is. How did influencers destroy tween fashion? What is posting disease and how do you ensure you don't catch it? From what device must one send important emails? We talk about what's going on online and ask together why. Why are we like this? Find Never Post wherever you get your podcasts.